open your Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel again, the seventh chapter. Mark chapter 7 on page 842, if you're using the Blue Bible in front of you. I'm going to begin reading in the first verse. You follow along as I read out loud. Mark records for us, Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And then when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and said, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is then expelled? Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they are what defile a person. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Blessed are those who hear it and obey it. We are continuing our trek through the gospel of Mark to find out what the gospel of Jesus is really about. Today's passage is particularly important for us in the world that we live in today. The teaching that Jesus gives flows out of an encounter between Jesus and the religious teachers of his day. The Pharisees were not the strictest religious group, but they were one of the strictest religious groups of that day. 
They sought to carefully obey all of God's rules. That's not a bad thing. It's where they went with it. In order to obey all of God's laws, they built what they called a fence around God's laws to help them to keep from breaking them. Let me explain it this way. Say the law says that you can only go 55 miles an hour. They would build a fence around that law and say, well, you can only go 50. Because if you're going 50 miles an hour, there's no way for you to break the 55 mile an hour speed limit. Do you see? You ever been driving along and you look down and you're like, whoops, I'm speeding up, didn't even realize it. Well, if you're shooting for 50 and you accidentally go a little bit over it, you're still okay. But if you're trying to keep it right at 55 and you forget what you're doing, you're going, oh, oh, I broke the law. So they would build this fence around the law as a way to keep themselves from breaking it. They created all of these extra commandments, and in many of them they could become quite tedious. What you could eat, what you couldn't eat, what dishes you could use, what you couldn't use, when a dish could become unclean, when it could be clean. Some dishes, the only way you could make them clean was by breaking them, which kind of made them unusable. <laughs> hey, but it's clean. Well, they also came up with these rules of ritual purity. That's where the hand washing came in. That's what they called Jesus' disciples on for not washing their hands. This was not about having clean hands. You know, like what your mother would say when she would call you in for dinner, go wash your hands for dinner. Why did she tell us to do that? Because our hands were really dirty. But in this passage, the hand washing has to do with ceremonial, ritual cleansing. There are all these different things that you could do that you could become ritually or ceremonially unclean. Touching a dead body or a leper or a Gentile. All those things are, that would make you ritually unclean. But there are also things you could do that would strike us as strange. Just reading the Old Testament in the Syrian language would make you unclean. And you're like, how can you become unclean by reading your Bible? Well, because you're reading it in the wrong language. That's why. And that's what they would do. They would sit down and they'd make all these rules, all these laws became quite overwhelming. And so the disciples this day were not breaking God's laws they were breaking man-made laws, religious traditions that were added by men. These are people who have substituted outward religion for a close relationship with God. These are people who are big on the outward stuff, like fasting and public prayers. And we too can get caught up like the Pharisees and watching other people and what they're doing. You ever find yourself doing that? <gasps> did you see what he did? Making sure they're following all of our rules. People, we've got a problem this morning. Baptists have long had a tradition that we don't dance. And sadly, I'm here to tell you that one of our own 
was out on the dance floor Friday night. And I've got pictures of it too. Jimmy over here, he's holding his face. He knows I've caught him. Jimmy was at a dance Friday night. And he was cutting up the rug. What are we going to do about that? He broke a rule. If you want to see the pictures after church, let me know. I got it. Jesus responds to this charge that his disciples have broken this tradition by saying two things, by teaching about two different things. First, he starts talking about vain worship. Jesus goes all the way back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Look at verse 6. And he says, you're just like the people that Isaiah was talking about. Verse 6, he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The distinction here between what we say and what we do is huge. It's important. Because with our mouths, we can say one thing about God. Oh, I love God. I totally believe in God. But with our lives, we can say something different. We can go through the motions of worship, but it can be meaningless. We can actually honor God with our words and what we say, but our hearts can be a million miles away from Him. Which is why I often strive at the beginning of the service to get us focused on God. So that we are here not just repeating words, Singing songs. Have you ever found yourself singing a song where the words are coming out of your mouth, but you're not even thinking about what you're saying? We have the wonderful ability, maybe it's not so wonderful, that we can actually read something on the wall and sing it, but be thinking about something else. And absolutely put no thought into what we're saying. That's what Jesus is talking about here, about vain worship. Our bodies can be here. But our mind can be somewhere else. And the question then is, what good is it to be in worship physically if your heart's not in it? Jesus said in verse 7, this is vain worship. The word vain literally means empty. It's like opening up a walnut, and when you open it up, there's nothing. There's no nut in there. That's the word vanity, just empty. Jesus is telling us through the prophet Isaiah that God says our worship can be empty. It can be vain. It can be useless. Think of it this way. Suppose your spouse has nothing to do with you in daily life. Living basically like you don't exist. People in your spouse's life don't even know that he's married. But when Valentine's Day comes around, he buys you a big bouquet of flowers. What is that? You would say that's empty worship. 
that's meaningless. What? You think buying me some flowers one day a year is going to make up for the fact that you act like I don't exist the rest of the year? Now, in case you're having trouble following the analogy, how many people live their daily life as if God doesn't exist, but then we run into church on Sunday and, ooh, let's worship God. So we can run back out and act like God doesn't exist anymore. We run into church, we throw God a Valentine's Day card, and we run out and say, oh, I'm such a good person. If you're coming to worship on Sunday, but you don't want to be here, do you actually think God is impressed with that? Do we actually think that God doesn't know our hearts and God's just checking attendance to see how many bodies are here? Oh, I don't care if you want to be here. As long as you showed up, that's all that matters. Or will God say, you know what? It'd really be nice if you wanted to be with me. If you really wanted to spend time with me. If you're coming to church and you don't want to be here, here's the suggestion. Stay home. Really? Preacher said it's okay to stay home? No, I'm not saying it's okay to stay home, but I'm saying if you're coming to church, not because you want to, but just out of a sense of duty and you really don't want to be here and you're continually looking at your watch, when is this going to be over? When is this going to be over? Stay home. Because you're not going to get any credit from God for being there when you really weren't here. Are you with me? Would you want people around you all the time that made it clear they really didn't want to be around you, but they were just doing it because they felt like they had to? Oh, well, that makes for a special time, doesn't it? And yet week after week after week, we're guilty of doing the very same thing. We blow into church and we blow out like, okay, I did it. Give me a point. I was in church. That's all that counts. Why do we think that God is thrilled to have people around him who really don't want to be there? And then to show how empty their worship had really become, Jesus pointed to one of the practices of that day. And it was the practice, a word you might have never seen before. It's the word Corban. It means dedicated to God. This was simply a teaching, a practice, that said that you could dedicate something that you have or everything that you have to God. And it's something that you intend to give to God when you die. That We see this today all the time. People will say they're going to give something when they die and they put it in a will. This is what I want to happen to my stuff when I die. And so that's what they were doing. They were dedicating their stuff to God and saying, this is what I'm going to do with it when I die. So they make out a will. It only takes effect when you die, correct? The Corbin, though, had a neat little twist to it, though. Once you dedicated something to God, you couldn't give it to somebody else. You could keep it for yourself and do whatever you wanted with it except give it to somebody else. Now, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. 
That's how a will works, isn't it? You make out a will, but you can do whatever you want with it until you die. Except give it to somebody else. Because if you tell me you're going to give me something when you die, and then I find out you give it to somebody else, I'm like, oh, I thought I was going to get that. And so once you made a vow and you said you were going to give something to God, you were bound to not give it to somebody else. That makes sense. Don't promise it to God and then give it to somebody else. But then, suppose your mom and your dad come to you and they say, listen, we got no food. Could you give us some money so we could get some food? If you dedicated everything to God, you would say, I'd love to, but I can't. You see, everything I've got has been dedicated to God. So you're going to have to go hungry. The Bible scholar uh, T.W. Manson described this this way. He said, a man would go through the formality of vowing something to God, not because he wanted to give it to God, but in order to prevent other people from having it. And while trying to impress people with how righteous they were, oh, I've given everything to God. These people were ignoring the basic needs of their own parents. And there's a word for that. You know what it is? It's called heartless. It's heartless to hold on to your money and say, oh, I can't help you. i got to keep that money in the bank because it all belongs to God. You would not look at that person and say, well, that's a, that's a great person. You'd think, that's heartless. But they were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. What was Jesus' point? It was simply this. They had created this cool practice of giving something to God, dedicating all that you had to him. Now, that's got to be a good thing. I'm telling you, if you give everything to God, that's got to be good. Until you stop and ask yourself the simple question. How much did it cost them to give everything to God? Nothing. You know why? Because they didn't give it to God until after they died. At which point most people stop caring about their stuff. There are some people I think even when they die, they don't, they don't stop caring about stuff, right? They wanted to give all this stuff to God supposedly, but then they kept it for themselves. And Jesus said, that's kind of neat. You make this tradition about giving everything to God when you die. But then you say, and they would actually, the rabbis would tell that person, not that they shouldn't help their parents, you can't. Because to give money to your parents now is to break your vow to God. And Jesus said, well, let's see. We've got a tradition of man or we've got the commandment of God. You know, one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. They just set that aside so they could keep their vow. And Jesus said, that's cool. You create a tradition that allows you to selfishly keep everything for you, even as you pretend like, but this is all for God, as you break the commandments of God. There's a second part of what Jesus is teaching here that's important, though, and that's on defilement. Look at verse 15. 
Jesus said in verse 15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Nothing on the outside can go in and defile us. We have a fundamental misunderstanding of how defilement works. We see ourselves as basically good. We see ourselves as born good people. And then we go astray. Something defiles us. And well, what happened? Where where did he go wrong? We begin with the premise that our default position is good until we're defiled and we go away. That's not what the Bible teaches. Contrary to what we believe, the Bible teaches that we're not good. None of us never have been good. We're born into sin, and then each and every one of us chooses to go after sin. Not some of us, not most of us, all of us choose to go after sin and to live out that sin nature. The problem isn't that we're good and then we become defiled. You'll even hear people say incorrectly that they were born a Christian. Mm -mm. You may have been born into a Christian family, but no one is born a Christian. We see this in the Pharisees in this story. They think they're doing just fine. And they're watching Jesus' disciples to see if they're doing anything wrong. Trying to catch them breaking a rule. In a different story, we're told that they were watching the disciples to see if they were, would work on the Sabbath by picking grain. Remember? In this story, they're watching and complaining because the disciples aren't pouring water over their hands to ritually clean them. But while they're watching others and what others are doing wrong, they're totally turning a blind eye that they want Jesus dead. They are focusing on being defiled by something on the outside and they're forgetting about what's on the inside. On the inside, they're horribly dirty. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, within, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These come from inside of us. It's not something dirty out there that comes in and affects us. It's already in there. We're already messed up. That's why Jesus said in Matthew, he, he criticized the Pharisees. He said, woe unto you because you're so f- focused on making your plates clean that you've forgotten that you've got greed and envy and all this stuff on the inside. He said, you're blind. He said, why are you worrying about that plate and whether it's clean when you've got a dirty heart? Jesus gets into the difference then between outward religion And the inner heart. And this is where empty worship comes in. Even though they have these horrible hearts, 
They're giving outward worship to God through religion. But it actually gets worse than that. Even as they're doing this outward religion, thinking they're doing so good, they're planning to and eventually do murder Jesus. They kill the Son of God. They're worried about dirty hands because everybody knows that God doesn't want us eating with ritually impure hands, right? At the same time, they're planning on killing an innocent man. Because, as everyone knows, murdering somebody with clean ritual hands is fine. You wouldn't want to kill somebody with dirty hands. But we've been asking ourselves week after week, what is the gospel? What do we learn from Jesus about the good news? The gospel is about our heart. Religion is about rules. The gospel is about a changed heart. Why do so many people fall away? Remember we saw a few weeks ago in the parable of the sower? Remember? Why do so many people fall away? It's because they've not had a heart change. Because we can do the church stuff, we can do the worship stuff, but not have a different heart. We can honor God with our mouths, but our heart not be in it. Too many people see the gospel as simply a bunch of rules to follow. You want to go to heaven? Great. Keep these rules. And well-intentioned people try to impose more and more rules on people. If we can just get people to follow the rules, things will be better. As if having rules will cause people to live better lives. And we continue to miss this today. And one of the hottest political issues of the day is the issue of gun control. Because if we can just pass some more laws, that'll get those bad guys to stop killing people. Right, sure. Because if the law already says don't kill somebody and they're willing to break that law, but I won't use a gun because, hey, that's against the law. They don't care. You can pass more and more laws all day long. Rules don't make us better. Rules only show us where we fail to live up. And this is what happens in the church. We just try to put more and more rules on people to rule them into better behavior. But that ignores what Jesus teaches here. The problem isn't that we need more rules. The problem is we need a new heart. Where does murder come from? Does it come from a gun? No, it comes from a heart with murderous intent. And guess what? Take away all the guns. And if you still have murder in your heart, you'll find some way. Right? Trust me, Trish doesn't own a gun, and I'm thankful she doesn't. But when she kills me, she'll probably choke me to death. Right? Because if you want somebody dead, you'll find a way. You don't need a gun. 
The gospel isn't about putting a coat of paint on something old and making it look new. Because you can paint something old and make it look new, but it's still old. And too many people come into the church and they just want to get a new coat of paint on so they look good, but the same old heart's still there. God's desire is not that we look good on the outside. God's desire is that we be made new from the inside out. And this is a truth that we struggle with trying to teach to men in pathway all the time. Addicts believe if they can just stop putting alcohol in their bodies, then they'll be clean. Not realizing that just being a sober person doesn't make you a new person. Too many people want to add religion as a way of fixing themselves. We can be really bad people, but if we go to Mass, we say a few prayers, say a few Hail Marys, have communion, then we're good to go. But folks, this isn't a Catholic thing. Many Baptists are guilty of empty worship too. Many years ago we had a woman that uh, we knew in our personal life. She was going to go out drinking and partying on a Saturday night. And she said, but i got to swing by the church and go to Mass first. And I'm like, that's cool. You can go to church and confess your sins before you ever do them. And this is the point. We're guilty of having empty worship. And thinking that's good enough. Which is why it's so important that we not let people around us believe that we think we're going to heaven because we go to church. You've had people say it to you. I've had them say it to me. They say, oh, you're going to heaven because you go to church all the time. Whenever somebody says that, correct them. Don't let them walk away and think that you agree with them that you're going to heaven because you go to church. Make sure to tell them that church is external religion and it's important. But if we don't have a different heart, if we haven't been made new in Jesus Christ, then religion doesn't matter. But you see, Jesus was addressing a problem from 2,000 years ago of vain worship. But guess what? The church today is filled with people who are just like this. People who come to church, but they don't love God. They come to church on Sundays and they throw a Valentine's Day card at God and say how much they love Him. But then they won't serve God in any meaningful way in the church. Well, that's for other people to do, not me. Goodness, we won't even sing to God while we're here. Think about it. How many times do you find yourself just standing there mumbling some words, if you're saying anything at all? You're mumbling and singing so softly, the person right in front of you can't even hear you. Why? Because our heart is not in it. That's why. 
and we feel good about ourselves for giving heartless worship to God. Because when we don't come to church, oh, I feel bad. But then we come to church and we don't give God heartfelt worship and we feel good. Is that what you want? Do you want somebody in your life who's going to ignore you, act like you don't matter, but throw you an insincere I love you once in a while and you're like, woo, makes me feel so good. So you want to know what the standard is for how you know if you're giving heartfelt worship to God or just going through the motions? How do you know? It's simple. Look at how you used to serve sin before coming to Christ. Back before you became a Christian, did you serve sin just an hour a week and then reluctantly? Were you always coming up with excuses why you didn't have time or money to do your sin? Or did you do everything in your power to make sure you had time and money to do your sin? So why now do we think God should be satisfied with us reluctantly giving Him a little bit of time when that compares nothing like how we used to serve sin? When you always had time and money for your sin, but you never seem to have time and money for God, what's God supposed to think? God's supposed to think that our heart was really in our sin, but our heart really isn't into Him. Take your Bibles real quick. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. Page 942. Romans chapter 6, look at verse 17, just one verse. Romans 6, 17 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to God from the heart. That should be our prayer today. God, I want to be in love with you as much as I was in love with my sin. I want to serve you more than I was willing to serve my sin. You know why? In that verse, Paul says, thanks be to God. Do you know why? Because if it wasn't for God changing our hearts, we would still be chasing wholeheartedly after our sin today. Amen? It's only because of God's grace that He turns us around and makes us slaves now of righteousness. Not because we have to, but because we want to. And so today, we need to do a heart check. When you do something religious, when you do something that's church-related, ask yourself why you're doing it. If your heart's not in it, ask yourself, why is my heart not in this? Think of it this way. Your spouse, your significant other, whatever, 
about 11.55 tonight, they come running in with a Valentine's Day card and say, just got in under the wire. Still Valentine's Day. I got almost forgot. At least I got it to you before Valentine's Day was over. And you'd be thinking, oh, isn't that sweet? And you flip it over and you see they picked it up at the speedway while they were getting gas, right? Would you be okay with that? No. Neither's God. God is not okay with us throwing him insincere tokens of love. Because God sees our hearts. God sees how we live during the week, and he says, you don't care about me. You're just going through ritual worship, empty worship, and you want me to be okay with that. Let's pause before we have the meal. Father God, we're thankful this morning for the Lord's Supper. And for the way that it speaks to us about your love for us. And God, we don't want to take this meal today in an unworthy manner. We don't want to just eat some bread and drink a little juice and then feel good about ourselves. God, this is a time for us to remember how much you love us. You didn't just throw a cheap card at us to tell us you love us. You sent your son to die for us. God, break our hearts with our insincere worship, our half-hearted worship, where we come in, we can't wait to get it over with so we can go home and do the stuff we really want to do where we'll stand here and, and sing in a pathetic way to you as if you're a pathetic God. God, break our hearts with how phony we've become. And during this time, cause within our hearts to rise up a sincere commitment to you to do better. To give you genuine worship. To not just follow the rules. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.